Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Hamish. We have recorded a little introductory episode that you might want to listen to if you haven't already. It'll just cover what kind of things we're going to talk about and what we're about generally, and you can find it wherever you found this. Every fortnight, one of us will talk about a queer history topic from around the world and throughout time. This week, we're going to talk about the Australian bushranger, Captain Moonlight. I'll give a few content warnings for this episode, which we'll do before all of our episodes. We'll be discussing executions, police brutality and gun violence, and the episode also contains a couple of suicide mentions and one homophobic slur. If any of that sounds like something that you'd rather not listen to, please feel free to skip this episode. We have plenty of other content coming out soon, and there'll be a lot of variety and tone and content. So Captain Moonlight's real name was Andrew George Scott, but he generally goes by George. He was born on the 8th of January, 1845, in a small town in Northern Ireland. So he immigrated with his family in 1862 to New Zealand, and he came to Australia in June of 1868 looking for work, and he got a job as an amateur lay reader for a church. They were this huge force of men that the Church of England was employing because they were really understaffed at the time because the population was booming, and so they just performed basic services like preaching and doing funerals and things like that. So he got a job as a lay reader and was sent to Bacchus Marsh and then was then moved to Mount Egerton, which was a mining town in rural Victoria. So George Scott arrived in Mount Egerton at the end of March, and he quickly struck up a friendship with Julius Brune, who was a 17-year-old bank manager in Mount Egerton. Hang on. Did you say a 17-year-old yes, bank manager? he's a 17-year-old bank manager. This is going to go well. Yeah. This is exactly what the papers are saying in like six months. <laughs> <laughs> so they became really close friends really quickly, and he would go and see him most days. And they would sit and play cards. This sounds extremely heterosexual too, just saying. We'll get to it. Carry on. <laughs> um, and they'd sit and play cards and get drunk in the schoolhouse at nights, sometimes joined by the schoolmaster, who was called James Simpson. At the end of April, their friendship abruptly ended pretty much overnight. Jokey joke. Yeah. So that's the scene set. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So on Saturday, the 8th of May, 1869, Julius Brune is going to the bank at 10pm. The bank is locked. The safe inside isn't. And inside the safe is money and a cake of gold that Brune had put there earlier that day. Now, general practice was for Brune to take it to the police on weekends for safekeeping, but he didn't do it this time, and he could never explain why. Is it because of crime? It may be because of crime. (laughs) (laughs) So are they in this together, then? I mean... Okay, keep going. We're going to have, like, quite a time figuring this out. All right. So according to Brune, a man in a mask leapt out from the shadows and cocked a gun against his head. Brune claimed that he recognised him as George Scott. However, Scott was taller than him and thin and Brune described the man as being stocky and short. Also, Brune knew nothing about guns, but he claimed he could recognise the gun as a Colt revolver just from hearing the cock of the weapon. Sure. <laughs> it's going to be one of those times. <laughs> He's forced into the bank and forced to surrender the gold and the cash, which was totaling in worth over a thousand pounds. I did an intensely dodgy Google search, and apparently that's about $150,000 in modern Australian money. So then Brune and the bank robber go for a bizarre walk around the town. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Because he's got a really snazzy mask on and he wants everybody to see. Mm-hmm. So first they go to a nearby pond where... And the feed the ducks. Yeah. At night time. <laughs> <laughs> the black ducks. <laughs> With like a gun and a mask and <laughs> yes. $150,000. Like darkness. <laughs> where the robber apparently intended to tie Brune up and gag him and leave him. However, Brune had a sore throat and he asked if he could please instead be left in the stables. And the robber said, yeah, let's let's go. <laughs> 
So they go back to the main road and they walk up it to the stables. They walk past several groups of people. Okay. Yeah. Who are just like, this is normal. Yeah. So oh, yeah, it's Bran and his mate with a mask. <laughs> and also a pistol. Yeah. Some of these people later confirmed that they'd seen them, but they didn't notice a mask and they didn't notice a gun and they didn't notice George Scott, but instead saw James Simpson, the schoolmaster, hmm. with Bran. And I presume they also didn't notice the, like, cake of gold. <laughs> No, no. So the robber apparently decided that the stables weren't secure enough, and they walked up a back street to the Catholic church, where they hung out for about 15 minutes, and then they walked up the main street again, past the bank and a busy pub. (laughs) (laughs) What? The police asked Brune why he didn't rush into the pub for help, and he said... It was closed and it just demonstrably was not at the time. So they turned right and continued to the schoolhouse. Inside the schoolhouse, the robber has Brune write a letter proving his innocence and he wrote it by the light of two or three matches no used matches were found later but they did find some unused ones and when they showed them to Brune he said yeah those were the ones <laughs> Brune does not understand matches Brune does not understand lying yes <laughs> yes The letter reads, I hereby certify that L.W. Brune has done everything in his power to withstand our intrusion and the taking away of the money, which was done with firearms. And it was signed in a different hand as Captain Moonlight. Nice. I see. The story is so fake. It's great. So the robber then asked him how much of the money was his because he didn't want to rob the bank manager, just the bank. And he lied and he said, oh, 10 pounds, 15 shillings. And the robber gives him 11 pounds. The robber then ties his hands up. But at some point in these proceedings, Brune had apparently smuggled a penknife into his hat. Of course. Yeah. And he cuts himself free and leaves the schoolhouse 10 minutes later. The police said, why didn't the ropes leave any marks on your wrists? And he said, I don't know. Really nice ropes. Really fancy ropes. Silk. Bamboo. Yeah. Brune went and borrowed a horse from his neighbour and rushed to the police station at Gordon. He said that he had been robbed and that it was Scott who had done it. The police decided that Brune and Simpson had probably done it and arrested them. That does seem quite reasonable for everything I've seen here. Brune's versions of events constantly changed and, as you've heard, contained facts that were just demonstrably false. And then when this was brought up, he couldn't clarify any of it and just fell silent. James Simpson, the schoolmaster, also knew details of the crime and was touring visitors around the schoolroom the next day, showing them where everything had happened (laughs) before Brune got back from Gordon to tell the town about the robbery. Mm. I see. Mm -hmm. Did he at least charge admission? I don't know, but it feels probable. (laughs) The note that the robber had had Brune write was also torn from a page of the school ledger that Simpson had taken home with him earlier on the Saturday. (laughs) I have done a spectacularly unprofessional (laughs) job yet. I don't know that you could make a worse crime if you tried. Like, you could make it up and people would be like, that's silly, no one's that bad at crime. My favourite piece of evidence against Simpson was that the police saw a similarity between the signature on the note and Simpson's handwriting. And Simpson got really flustered when this was pointed out, and he first said that George Scott had just copied his handwriting, obviously. And then he said that his son was in the habit of writing Captain Simpson on, like, random bits of paper, in the way that kids do, you know, to pretend they're, like, superheroes or whatever. And that, therefore, the handwriting sample that the police had compared with the note was actually written by his son. And he got out a notebook from his house and turned to a page and said, see, like it says Captain Simpson there. And his son was like, I never wrote that. And testified in court that he never wrote that. (laughs) Awkward. Yeah. Which leads me to the question of, is James Simpson just sitting around in his house, like the principal of a school, writing like, Captain Simpson, I'm awesome. (laughs) I guess he wanted to practice writing Captain in Captain Moonlight's signature, but without making it super obvious. 
A thing that may be worth pointing out here is that there's an existing tradition in Europe, and like specifically England, Ireland, Scotland, where if you are a highwayman, you call yourself Captain something. Yeah, which really sounds like what this is trying to yeah. invoke, like the Captain Moonlight name. But we'll get to its origins in a bit, actually. It's mysterious hmm. and weird. But I would believe it was like, I'm a dandy highwayman. I'm a very cool man. I'm yeah. like writing Mr. Mm. and Mrs. Smith on my notebook. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like, like someone as a crush writing like their crush's surname with their first name in a notebook. <laughs> so George Scott obviously denied Bruin's accusation that he had robbed the bank and said he hadn't even been in Mount Egerton and he had a train ticket to prove it. The date was, however, illegible. Even though he claimed to have an alibi, public opinion still favoured Scott as the culprit, though. What? <laughs> I imagine they didn't release everything. Yeah. This is like the next day. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. yeah, okay. They just essentially heard, I guess, that Brune had said that he'd been robbed by this man and had no reason to disbelieve him. So George Scott resigns from his church duties and left town a few days after the robbery. And the local story goes that he rode slowly through the town on a black horse and out of it along a track that still exists to this day called Black Horse Lane. Oh, that's we the place we went, yes. We did. We went on a little Queerest Fact excursion and it was great. It was fantastic. So Brune got heavy hints from his employers at the bank that they didn't really want him working there anymore. And he resigned. (laughs) Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was the first to stand trial. George Scott was a witness at Bryn's trial, and part of his testimony was revealing that when he had been in the army in New Zealand, his army friends had called him Captain Moonlight. Hmm. Hmm. And that the nickname had also been used in Mount Egerton. But unfortunately, no one thought to ask him further questions about this, like why they gave him that name. So did he just rock up in town in Mount Egerton and was like, hey, I'm George Scott, but people call me Captain Moonlight. And everyone was like, yeah, no worries. Come have a drink with me, Captain Moonlight. I think I would enjoy it more if like, this is a nickname that he got independently in Mount Egerton and the army because it's just really apparent that his nickname is really <laughs> Captain Moonlight. He just Moonlight. really looks like a Captain Moonlight. Yeah. He also claims that he had been in a house near Balan until 10pm on the night in question. And although they pressed him for more details, he wouldn't say what he was doing there or who he had been with apart from the fact that he had seen a married woman and wouldn't divulge her name. Hmm. So Brune was found not guilty and as a result the charges against Simpson was dropped and so was the matter. They had no culprit and no gold and they just stopped talking about it for a while. They were just like well that was an embarrassing fake robbery (laughs) and then they moved on. Mm. So Scott has left Mount Egerton now And on the 6th of September, 1869, he sails from Melbourne to Fiji. He befriends the ship's owner, a man named Alan Ramsey Ewan, and they decide to go into business with each other and a man named Francis Holworthy and establish a cotton plantation. In Fiji? In Fiji. Okay. For this purpose, while he's in the area, he buys an island. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, as you do. Yeah, called Vomo Island for £260 to be paid for within nine months. It's a luxury Mm -hmm. resort today. The cheapest rooms are $2,300 a night. Wow. Yeah. So much money. Yes. So he goes back to Australia tasked with finding cotton seeds for his plantation. And upon his arrival, he deposits £503 to the bank, which he gained from selling a cake of gold to the Sydney Mint. Oh. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. So that raises some questions. It really does. Mm -hmm. He didn't look for cotton seed and instead spent a lot of time going to fancy hotels and running up huge bills. He had a preference of beer and gin. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. 
Sometimes he would pay the bill, sometimes he would not. (laughs) Holworthy, one of his business partners, was getting nervous in Fiji, telling him that he really needed to get back by February 1st. By the end of June, he had £27 left and he had not returned to Fiji. Ewan sent him a letter scolding him, saying, If you don't see the folly and the shame, yes, I say shame italicized, of your proceedings, you must be a perfect idiot. And he goes on, I would understand it in a mean, low-spirited mongrel, but in you, oh heavens, it is a monstrous, a shameful paradox. My heart's little treasure, my joyous, innocent darling. Well, okay. I would rather see you than anyone on earth. Aww. Poor Terry, who's one of his biographers, assumes that they were lovers. That seems fairly reasonable from my yeah. sweetest, innocent darling. Yeah. That was a fairly effusive letter, yeah. He signs that with like, also, I'm sending you love from my wife and child. Goodbye. We don't really know much about them, so we can't, like, make a case either way. But mm-hmm. it's interesting. George Scott definitely, in his life, has just, like, a series of very close male relationships that culminates with, like, the love of his life, who we'll get to later. And so he did plan to return to Fiji, but was arrested for fraud the day before he was going to leave. That does seem quite reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So by this time, it's November, and he has no money, and he's been paying for everything with bad checks. To give an idea of some of his spending habits... In February, he bought a sailing boat named the Comet outright for £273, (laughs) and he lived on her for some months. By November, he had sold the Comet, and he bought another boat, the Celeste, which was repossessed, to pay his bills. And then after that, he bought another ship with a fraudulent check that he apparently hoped to sail away from Melbourne to Fiji on before he could get in trouble for that, and it was called the Why Not. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) You made some choices, Captain Moonlight. Like, okay. He was arrested, however, and taken to prison. And on December 20th, 1870, he appeared in court. He pled not guilty. The jury spent 10 minutes deliberating and found him (laughs) guilty. Reasonable. And then he was sentenced to a year's hard labour at Maitland Jail. Hmm. So in the time since the robbery, Julius Brune, our old friend, the way-too-young bank manager, <laughs> had hired a private detective who was called Sly. Of um, course he was. Yeah. That's a very fake name. It probably was, I don't know. To keep an eye on Scott, and the PI reported the selling of the cake of gold to Brune, who then took it to the police. So in March of 1872, Scott is released from jail and goes to the Sydney police office to collect his belongings, where he is promptly arrested and sent to Victoria to stand trial for the robbery of the bank at Mount Egerton. Well, that must have been a trip. Yeah. Yeah. Is what happened that the three of them were in on this bank robbery together and then they had some kind of falling out mid-bank robbery and then he skipped town? Well... I have, like, a theory to pitch at you when there's more information. Okay. Okay. So he is awaiting trial in Ballarat Jail. So Ballarat Jail had been quite recently completed, I think about 10 years earlier, and people in Victoria were saying that it was unbreakoutable. So I should picture him in Azkaban. Yeah. Okay. Whenever you say... This is unsinkable. Yeah, like... It's going to happen. So he's kept in a cell with a guard outside in the corridors, and the prison is surrounded by these really high, really smooth outer walls. Mm. So in order to break out, he has to get out of his cell, Mm -hmm. get through the corridors, either overwhelming the guard or avoiding the guard, and then somehow climb these walls. Within weeks of arriving, he'd done it. Well done. Yep. So would you like to guess how? Did he break out of his cell, overcome slash avoid the guard, (laughs) and then exit the outer wall. Yeah, he did. Let's do this step by step. Do you Mm. want to guess how he got out of his cell? I was going to suggest that he seduced the guard. He did not. Damn it. Did he pretend to be ill, and then when they opened the door, 
parts of the garden. garden. No. So it began on Monday, the 11th of June, 1872 at 3am. And the first thing that happens is that George Scott and a man named James Plunkett both burst out of Scott's cell. Who the hell is James Plunkett? James Plunkett is another inmate of Ballarat Jail who was in the cell next to his. Nice job, Captain Okay, so how did they get the door? So, there were two ingredients to this prison break. One was that George Scott was very smart, and the other one was that the prison cut some corners. Okay. Which, if you're gonna, like, take the cheaper of two tenders and then say that no one can break out of your prison... Like, sure. come on, guys. So George Scott, while he was in his cell at the Ballarat Jail, discovered that the mortar between the bricks was quite soft. Mm. So he picked away at it until he could pull out a brick, hiding all the like chips of mortar and everything in his bed, and then another one until there was space enough for James Plunkett to slide through into his room. I'm imagining James Plunkett, like, caterpillaring through there. He would have had to, yeah. yeah. So the inside of the doors in the cells was meant to be covered with this thick sheet of iron, but instead it was a sheet of iron that was as thin as, like, a page in a Bible. And they just peeled it off. (laughs) It's like aluminium foil. Yeah. Okay. And then all that was between them and the lock was a thin piece of wood and a single nail. So they just broke it down and they ran out into the hall and they subdued the guard. Okay, so that's two of three. Yep. So they tied up the guard, they seized knives and blankets, and then they broke out four other prisoners. Where did they get the rope to tie up the guard? They may not have used rope, they may have used blankets. Oh mm. yeah, bed sheets or mm. whatever. Or them. rope exists in prisons and they found some. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Are the four other prisoners so that they can make a human pyramid to get over the wall? Basically. Yes! <laughs> so they tear the blankets into strips and make it into a rope. And then Scott goes and stands against the base of the wall... And one man climbs onto his shoulders. That's amazing. <laughs> and then another man climbs onto his shoulders and so on until there are six men stacked at the base of this wall. I'm impressed the Chinese gymnastics team only goes three men high. And so this is why they'd broken out four other prisoners is because George Scott had figured out exactly how many men he needed to stack to get to the top of the wall. Nice. Mm-hmm. I assume there's space for a climb him like a tree joke in here. <laughs> if you <laughs> I wonder how he selected the men for the athletic ability to climb a six-man-high human tower. Like, did he, like, check these men out in the exercise yard and go, wow, he's got really good balance, I'm taking him. Potentially, yeah. And he's very thin, so I can, like, grab onto the ribs. (laughs) So then the man on top climbed onto the top of the wall and pulled the next man down up, and then they pulled the rest up by rope, and then they climbed down and they ran away. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. All of this so far has sounded fake as hell, but I promise it all happened. So once they got out of prison, they all split up, and then they were all rearrested within a week. Oh. Well, yeah. On July 24, Captain Moonlight's trial for the bank robbery of Mount Egerton began. So I won't go over all of the details of the trial, because a lot of the evidence is the evidence from Bruin's trial earlier. The case against him basically rests on Bruin's accusation, the fact that he doesn't really have an alibi, the fact that he sold a cake of gold, and the fact that now as a convicted criminal, people are automatically viewing him worse. Mm. At this point, would you like to make any statements about who you think robbed the bank and how? I'm pretty sure that the three of them were in on it, and somehow in the process of the bank robbery, they had a dramatic falling out, and so Captain Moonlight skipped town with the gold. Maybe the plan was you, you being Mr. Mm. 17-year-old bank manager, you leave all the cash in the safe, or the cake of gold in the safe, yeah. just unlock it for us, we'll walk in, and then you and I, 
I being the schoolmaster, will make a big distraction in the town and will say it was George and George will be all the way off with the gold. And then George ran off with the gold. Yeah, and then they were going to meet up or something, I don't know, and split the gold, and George just buggered off and took the gold. Like, possibly those things, yes. Ultimately, I have to like tell you, we don't know. Mm-hmm. I think general historical opinion is that Scott just did it. But there's so many holes in this story, mm-hmm. but there's also so many holes in the story, no matter where you look at it from. If they'd had a falling out, it would have had to happen on the night, mm-hmm. because Brune went straight from the schoolhouse to the next town where he immediately accused Scott. I suppose if Scott just rode off into the night with the gold, then that's enough of a reason for falling out. Logistically, if they show up at the bank to rob it and the plan is like, we'll rob this bank and George, you take the gold and then we'll all split it. Hmm. He's taking the gold anyway. That's a really short time frame to realize that like, wait a minute, he's actually taking the gold. Like, unless, mm. I suppose if he was meant Mate. to rendezvous at mm. the schoolhouse mm-hmm. or something. There's like a step five where it's like, and then we'll meet you later, and he's not there. Yeah, but still, that seems quite dramatic to immediately go to, like, let's accuse Unless him of... he left a note that was like, bye guys, off to my island resort. Where's the note? Yeah. I don't know. Because that would have been great to have in court. I mean, not really, because that shows that the other two were in on it mm. in the first mm. place. Point. Mm. So he burnt the note with one of those unused matches. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is fairly spurious. <laughs> I'm going to pitch you a theory in a second that is also, like, somewhat Yay. spurious. <laughs> Excellent. It's great. You also do have to take into account, if they're all in on it at the start of the night and by the end of the night they're not, where that massive falling out that Brune and Scott had had, like, a few months earlier, where they mm. just don't speak to each other now, plays mm. into that. Unless it's all an enormous ruse. I was going to say, maybe it was fake, so no one would guess that they were working together. Maybe, but if they're putting that much planning into it, you think they could have gotten an alibi straight or literally any of their facts straight i'd be entertained if they tried to pin it on him and then he was like i know these guys i know where they'd hide a ton of gold yeah. and then he runs off with the gold mm. maybe he does just know them super well from all those like fun nights they had getting drunk in the schoolhouse and he's like i know we talked all the time about where we hide the gold if we robbed the bank and he goes there and he's like well the gold's there and he takes it and he leaves town well that does beg the question of how he knew there was a robbery in place if he wasn't involved in it Anyway, during the trial, Brune again gets super tangled up in his story. This time he added that he wrote the note by the light of only one match. Right. That is fast writing. That is. Scott's lawyer said, all right, prove it, light a match and write out the word. (laughs) He failed several times. (laughs) As you would. Yeah. So things were going fairly well for George Scott. Then a lunch break was called. And during that lunch break, Scott and his lawyer had a dramatic falling out and his lawyer went, fine, you be your own lawyer and left. It seems to happen to Scott. Yeah, look, he was probably kind of obnoxious. Hmm. So Scott goes, fine, I'll be my own lawyer and is. This is going to go so well. Mm -hmm. So he immediately recalls Brune to the stand and keeps him there for six hours and just drags him, basically. The courtroom is packed and everybody is just laughing at Brune. (laughs) As Scott makes fun of him. This has gone fairly well. So Brune's time on the witness stand contained the following exchange. I couldn't find the full transcript, so I've kind of reconstructed it. The exact wording is therefore not a matter of historical record, but the sentiment very much is. And I'm going to get my friends to help me out here. Hamish will be playing Andrew George Scott and Irene will be Julius Brune. Brune, are you in the habit of lying? Certainly not. But you lied to the robber, did you not? You told him you were owed £10.15 by the bank, prompting him to give you £11. 
It was acceptable to lie to retrieve the stolen money. If you would tell a lie for £10.15, shillings, how much would you swear one for? I asked for that amount of money because it seemed the amount of money a robber would give me. Do you mean to say that this model robber who offered you a drink, wrapped you up in a coat and hat, and walked you about the place while his own life was in danger would not have given you £20? No comment. So the jury deliberates for three hours and they find Andrew George Scott guilty of robbing the Mount Egerton Bank. He's sentenced to 10 years hard labour at Pentridge Prison. When he was in prison for the final time, Scott was very open about the crimes that he had committed and previously denied or tried to soften. But he never admitted to the robbery. He insisted that he was innocent until the day he died. Hmm. Historian Stephen Williams describes the situation as... The overwhelming weight of evidence proves that Scott was not involved in the Egerton robbery, and yet he must have been. I mean, maybe he just got a cake of gold from somewhere else. So I'm going to pitch a theory Hmm. that is very much based on Paul Terry's theory put forth in In Search of Captain Moonlight, his fairly authoritative biography. So would you agree that it's safe to say that the men who went to the bank were Brune and Simpson? That seems reasonable. Yeah, I think so. Yep. So the question ultimately becomes, was Scott an accomplice or was he set up? Hmm. Yeah. It's pretty safe to say that the idea of robbing the bank was probably bandied about one night when the three of them sat drinking in the schoolhouse. I feel like everyone has that conversation where you're drinking with your friends. You're like, imagine if we robbed a bank, how would we do it? And in this case, one of them's a bank manager. And it's probable that Captain Moonlight, as George Scott's nickname, came up then too. Hmm. But then Brune and Scott have their falling out, so any plan to rob the bank is now jeopardised or off the table. Terry suggests that maybe Scott made a sexual advance to Brune that was rejected, or maybe Brune accepted it and then later regretted it, and then they had their falling out. Brune later said that Scott would often enter the private rooms at the back of the bank, and once he proposed to sleep there, to which Brune said, but there's only one bed, and Scott was like, okay, and left. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just heard the whistling sound as it goes straight over his head. Yes. (laughs) And if it had been a sexual matter, it would explain why they'd have this like very brief, intense friendship that had then rapidly cooled. Hmm. But also, you know, maybe it wasn't sexual in any way and they just had a falling out over anything. We've had a couple of instances where Scott has just kind of been a dick and then he's fallen out with people, like, say, a lawyer that he needed. Hmm. He was definitely a hot-headed man who would just say things, even if it wasn't the best idea. Either way, perhaps Brun and Simpson, who were still drinking buddies, decided to still go ahead with the robbery, but to scapegoat Scott now. So Simpson and Brune meet at the bank and they stage the robbery. They have all those bizarre stops along the way because they're trying to find somewhere to hide the gold. And Terry also suggests that if Scott had really been with a woman, like it seems weird that that wouldn't have just been revealed at some point who it was. Because if it comes down to doing 10 years hard prison or just betraying a woman that you were sleeping with, yeah. I feel like Scott probably would have just done it. Fair. I mean, of course there's a possibility that he was just you know, around and robbing a bank or just had no alibi. But he also suggests maybe he was telling a version of the truth that was slightly sanitized, that he was with a man Mm. instead and that he couldn't ever give up his alibi because admitting that he'd been... Bonking a man. Is not going to make him look any better. No. He's going to end up in a worse circumstance than if he just gets charged with robbing a bank. Mm. Paul Terry also says that if Brun had known that Scott was off with a man, then... 
he would have known that Scott could never reveal an alibi and was mm. the perfect person to scapegoat. I think that's a little weak. Possibly he knew that George Scott liked men, possibly firsthand he knew this, but since they've had their falling out, it seems weird that he'd know the exact night that George mm. Scott was off to have a little rendezvous with his mysterious potential lover. So during his stay at Pentridge Prison, George Scott would begin to claim that Brune had given him the gold in 1869 in Ballarat. Huh. Hmm. Which on the surface sounds ridiculous. Why would you do that? But Brune's reputation had been damaged by the trial. He had lost his job, even though he was never charged with anything. And it would have been really difficult for him to sell this giant hunk of gold. So maybe he gave it to Scott had him watched by that private investigator until he sold it and then reported it to the police. Hmm. So Scott gets arrested and charged, and Brune is forever exonerated from the possibility that he robbed the Mount Egerton Bank. Hmm. Oh yeah. That's solid. Tricksy. It's a stretch, but it holds together. Yeah, I mean, it's plausible. Hmm. Ultimately, we don't know. Hmm. History. Yeah, history. I think it is fairly safe to say that Brune, Simpson, and Scott were all involved at some point to some degree. Yeah. It is difficult not knowing the truth, though, because this prison sentence that he serves for this crime kind of sets up the events of the rest of his life. Mm. And not knowing if that's because he was wrongfully accused or because he's just a bank robber is weird and difficult. Mm. Mm. But in any case, whether he was meant to be there or not, Pentridge Prison was where George Scott met James Nesbitt. Is this about to get super gay? James Nesbitt is the love of his life, who he will stay with pretty much every minute he's awake for the rest of his life. So yes. yes. Yeah. So James Nesbitt had begun a string of petty thefts at the age of 15 in 1873, just doing things like robbing tills and stuff like that. He lived in Carlton, which, if you're not a Victorian resident, is an inner city suburb of Melbourne. And at the time, it was plagued with alcoholism, poverty, violence, gang activity. It wasn't a great place to be growing up. So James Nesbitt helped rob a man with some friends and was sentenced to four years in Pentridge. Pentridge prison was pretty much exactly what you expect from a 19th century prison. It was terrible. They did backbreaking labor, like breaking rocks apart, and they were often kept in isolation and they were beaten often and that sort of thing. Was the breaking rocks apart stuff actually for a purpose or did they just get rocks yeah. to give these guys something to do? No, because like how else do you make gravel? Okay, fair enough. They were just like manually making gravel. Or just like Smaller rocks. It's here that George Scott begins to describe himself as, quote, at war with society and the authorities, which is a major theme of the rest of his life, and how he fundamentally views the dynamic between himself and society until his death. I mean, I guess I see where he'd get this if he'd been wrongfully accused. Yeah. Like, he's been fairly thoroughly betrayed by society then. Yeah. And it is this kind of case of that could be quite sympathetic or he could just be a bank robber. <laughs> can be quite sympathetic though yes but less so than someone who's in prison for literally no reason yeah true so it's in prison that he meets and forms a deep connection with james nesbitt we know that a day was added to james nesbitt's sentence for taking tea to prisoner scott oh mm. terry i think describes it as curiously tender for like a prison paperwork file mm. A newspaper noted that they had been great chums in pentridge and in order to preserve discipline had to be separated <laughs> James Nesbitt is released in September of 1878, and George Scott is released on the 18th of March, 1879. He's served just under seven years in jail, 
and Nesbitt's waiting for him at the gate when he's released. So they move into a boarding house together in an industrial poor area of Fitzroy, which is another northern inner city suburb. Scott decides that he wants to make a living on the lecture circuit talking about the harsh conditions of the prison system. Hmm. Okay. He hires an assistant, a young man named Frank Johns, who had had a promising life before his hand was crushed at his job in a biscuit factory, and since then he found it hard to get work. Wow, 1800s, man. Yeah. So Scott begins on the lecture circuit speaking to audiences of a few hundred. He's quite a famous name at this time, and people are really keen to hear what he has to say. He describes the harsh conditions of the prison system, how crime isn't worth it, and how he had now served his time and expected to integrate back into society and be treated well by society Mm. now that he had paid for all of his crimes. Mm. The venues quickly began to refuse to let him speak, Crowd numbers dropped. He remarked that people are not interested in Scott. They would much rather hear and see Captain Moonlight. He becomes an object of a campaign of harassment from the police, and he and his friends are continuously falsely accused of crimes. Like, demonstrably falsely as well. Is that to say people weren't interested in listening to him because he'd essentially repented and they wanted to go and hear this, like, highwayman talk, and he was like, prison conditions are terrible, I want to be rehabilitated. And they were like, that's boring. Or just too radical. Yeah, I think talking about the prison system is bad and we need to fix this wasn't actually sensationalistic or fun at all. It was just like, oh, yeah, that is a major problem with society that we don't really want to think about. And also just like all of the institutions he was trying to speak out, like hotels and universities, and the police were effectively discouraging people from seeing him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they're running out of money and they can't get work and they decide to leave Melbourne. So he left Melbourne in a group of five men. Three were himself, James Nesbitt, and Frank Johns. The other two were Gus Warnick and Thomas Rogan. So Warnick was 15 years old and he had had a bad family life. So he had left home and was struggling to support himself. He met Scott one day on Burke Street and Scott bought him buns and coffee because he heard that the boy hadn't eaten that day. Oh no. And Thomas Rogan was 22 and had just gotten out of prison on the latest of a series of short prison sentences for petty crime that had characterized his life. I just wanted us to have a rundown of all of the people with him because Mm. individually their characters aren't actually that important. It's just that all of the men who were with him are people who have had to deal with poverty or abuse at home or you know the one who has a crushed hand and is unable to find work and this is why they're with him Hmm. you know this is why there are groups of these men walking along the country roads in victoria at this time begging for work because poverty is a massive concern at this time unemployment is high and these are the conditions that are characterizing these men's lives. Are we in like the 1890s here? No. Or earlier 18. It's like 18, like 78, 79. Okay. Just getting to the end of like, gold's amazing. Yeah, so we're just at the end of the gold rush era yeah. and we're at the end of the bush ranger era as well. Yes. Of this time in his life, George Scott later said, I honestly felt unsafe in Victoria. I felt hunted down and maddened by injustice and slander. And he said that James Nesbitt saved me from being a hater of humanity. Mm. (laughs) That's very sweet. So they left Melbourne on foot with only what they could carry. The police harassed them all the way to the border, trying to provoke them into reacting. And they rode ahead to warn the towns they were coming to that they were dangerous and they shouldn't be given any work. They haven't even committed any crimes anymore. None of them are in prison. Yes. They're just like random people. Police, chill. It's very much that case, though, that once you do a crime, you are a criminal. So they're struggling to find work because the police are making things so difficult for them. But also, 
the countryside is very on edge because of Ned Kelly and his gang, who at this juncture we should probably stop and speak a little bit about, and about bushrangers generally. Ned Kelly is a thing. Ned Kelly is quite a figure in Australian history. So he was the last, really, of the bushrangers. Bushrangers being highwaymen who were very prolific in the later part of Victoria's Gold Rush era. So they did a lot of stuff, like riding around the countryside and holding up farms and taking their money and stuff like that. Didn't Ned Kelly used to do that thing where he'd steal a horse and then wait for the reward to come out and be like, look, I found your horse. Here, have it back. Thanks for the hundred pounds. I honestly don't feel up to saying what Ned Kelly did because he's one of those figures in Australian history who's essentially become like a mythical figure. He's a folk hero, as bushrangers kind of generally as a concept are, but Ned Kelly and his gang in particular. And I think Ned Kelly is a big part of why bushrangers are such folk heroes. He falls into a big category of folk heroes where he was totally an enormous criminal, but the whole country still loves him anyway, and it's not super clear why. A big reason why Australians like bushrangers is because they're really tied up in this kind of Robin Hood-esque idea of being these like working class poor who are fighting against a corrupt government, a corrupt police force. And that's true to varying extents depending on the bushranger and the circumstances. But it is Ned Kelly who cemented that idea in our minds of this like one man fighting against a system. And he had armor, which was really cool. <laughs> yeah. He's got like a snazzy helmet. He looks like a knight with guns. Yeah, he has really distinctive armor. The helmet is essentially like a tin with a strip cut out of it for the eyes. If you see it, you'll know it. Hmm. And they're unique amongst bushrangers, him and his gang, for having armor. It was immensely impressive that they managed to make it. And it made them incredibly hard to apprehend. It may seem odd if you're not Australian, or it may not, I really don't know, I'm Australian, <laughs> that the first person we've chosen to talk about in this queer history podcast is this criminal who had robbed a bank and was about to do yet more crime. But yeah, because of our cultural understanding of bushrangers, we don't care. This is kind of like having our own queer Ned Kelly. And it's really exciting as an Australian to have that kind of figure. Like as an Australian primary school student, you hear a lot about Ned Kelly mm. and a lot of it's positive. And a lot of the Ned Kelly stuff is wrapped up in the kind of wearing the Australian flag and drinking VB and masculinity myth of Australia. And it's a big deal to have queer figures that elope on that. Yeah, it is. Ned Kelly is someone who gets brought up pretty much every time we have a discussion about Australian mateship. It's really interesting to look at that through a queer lens, and I think we'll do a whole other episode on that, because there are some really interesting things happening at this time with masculinity and the norms of male-male relationships, because you're still in this largely especially in rural areas, male-dominated community. And we very much just cast that as like a very rigidly traditionally masculine and heterosexual environment, and that's not entirely true because it never is. Yeah, so I did think that it might be difficult for people to view George Scott sympathetically, given that, you know, we're Australian, we care about bushrangers, we come at this from a particular angle. But then I was reading articles about this and was seeing people compare him to figures like the Robin Hood myth in England and some of the cowboys in America. And it does seem that that kind of myth of, you know, this rugged anti-hero. What does some crime. Who does some crime, but does it in a really dashing fashion with a mask and a cloak. Is universal. So at this time, Ned Kelly and his gang are riding around and terrorizing the countryside. And people are wary of any gang of men. They're wary 
of any petty crime that happens because they blame it immediately on Ned Kelly. People at the time were saying George Scott, the infamous Captain Moonlight, was taking his gang of hardened criminals to meet Ned Kelly and join up with the Kelly gang. And Ned Kelly apparently said, if I see George Scott, I'm going to shoot him down. Why was Ned Kelly so strongly against him? I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know the source for this. I just know that his biographers love quoting this. I'm going to include it with that caveat. That's all I got. Ned Kelly was like, like Scott, a hot-headed... I mean, that seems to be a bushranger trait. That's a bushranger trait, yeah. Seems like the sort of thing you put on your resume when you're interviewing for bushranging. Yes. So along the way, Scott and his men sell some of their possessions for money to buy food. They're living on tea and koala meat and damper. Koala meat? Yeah, koalas were this, like, easy target. Do people not in Australia know what damper is? Probably not. It's like bread, but bad. It's like bread, but it's, it's super nice. It is nice. Yeah. It's basically just flour and water. And the idea is that if you're traveling around the Australian countryside in the olden times, then you can just make it in your little billy kettle. Which is called a billy. And it's just super easy and cheap. And you make it when you're like seven in Australian primary schools. Mm-hmm. On a school camp. Yeah. Or you like sit in the corner of your school's yard and pretend you're in the bush as I did. <laughs> Aww. So they reached New South Wales and they learned of a station called Wantabadgery that was friendly to swagmen and they decided to head towards it. Swagmen, a man who travel around with only a swag, aka like a little makeshift bedding arrangement that they can carry on their back looking for work. We have a folk song about them stealing sheep. It was almost our national anthem. It's called Waltz what, and Matilda. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, look it up. Random people listening to this who aren't Australian. Hmm. Hmm. On the way to Wantabadgery, they picked up a six member called Graham Bennett. And by the time they got there, they'd walked over 400 kilometres. That brings us to the end of part one. I will see you again in part two, which is also out now. Thank you for listening. <laughs>